Good morning. <laughs> so good to be back. It's been a couple of years, and Greg and I are just so pleased to be back. And I want to thank especially Konjun Roshi, a dear Dharma friend and mentor and teacher, for inviting me to give this talk today. And thank you to all of you for being here and for taking care of uh, this beautiful place and practice. And it's just, it's so enlivening and encouraging to be here. So thank you. We're so happy to be back. So today I want to talk about, um, there's two there's two things that will get woven together in some way. And I want to start with um, uh, a short piece of writing by Naomi Shihab Nye, the poet. She lives in San Antonio. It's not a poem. It's a story about her. Um, it's a story about poetry in a way. And she says, um, when... When she was teaching poetry in Japan, she learned the word yutori from one of her students. The student said, here in Japan, we have a concept called yutori, and it is spaciousness. It's a kind of living with spaciousness. For example, it's leaving early enough to get somewhere so that you know you're going to arrive early. So when you get there, you have time to look around. The student gave all these different definitions of what Yutori was to her. One of them was, after you read a poem, just knowing you can hold it. You can be in that space of the poem, and it can hold you in its space, and you don't have to explain it. You don't have to paraphrase it. You just hold it, and it allows you to see differently. So the other is... Uh, a koan, case number 19 from the Mumankan. Joshu asked Nansen, what is the way? Nansen replied, ordinary mind is the way. Joshu said, shall I try to seek after it? Nansen said, if you try for it, you will become separated from it. How can I know the way unless I try for it? The way is not a matter of knowing or not knowing. Knowing is delusion, not knowing is confusion. <laughs> when you have really reached the true way beyond doubt, you will find it as vast and boundless as outer space. How can it be talked about on the level of right or wrong? With these words, Joshu came to a sudden realization. So these two have been weeping back and forth for me for a while. This uh, spaciousness, this allowing, and the striving, the trying. And, uh, and maybe this was partly becoming up, coming up because it feels somewhat seasonal. It's Christmas Eve today. It's um, uh, the holiday season more generally. It's the end of the year or the end of the semester, depending on what your daily world is in. And I think for most of it, it's a busier time than usual. So this, and yet we're supposed to be open at this time of year and receiving and connecting and all of these things. And we're so fortunate to have this place in this practice that gives us a framework for doing that, but it can still be a challenge and a practice. 
so just to say a little more about the case. Uh, so Joshu asked Nansen, or Jiaozhou uh, and Nanchuan in Chinese, what is the way? So at this time, Joshu was about 20 years old. He'd been practicing with his teacher, Nansen, for a couple of years. So young and fairly young in practice, very diligent, very sincere, and he wants to know basically, you know, what, what is the heart of the matter? What, what do I do? And Nansen just cuts through it all. Ordinary mind is the way. You're looking outside yourself, ordinary mind is it. And Joshi says, should I try to seek after it? Should I be doing? Should I be striving? How do I practice? And Nansen immediately says, if you try for it, you'll become separated from it. But how can I know the way unless I try? I'm just wandering around. Everything's fine, you know, except it's not. I know it's not. So what do I do? The way is not a matter of knowing or not knowing. Knowing is delusion. Not knowing is confusion. When you have really reached the true way beyond doubt, you will find it as vast and boundless as outer space. How can it be talked about on the level of right or wrong? And Joshi was ripe enough to have a realization in that moment, but it took him 30 years of practice, additional practice, to be able to express it. So we all have these moments, and then the expressing can be challenging. But that, uh, that still place in the center is so important. So, this spaciousness, the sense of spaciousness that it, you know, it's vast and boundless like outer space, or the sense of spaciousness in Utori is a kind of a, a negative capability, uh, not doing, that has a tremendous power. This capacity to not know, to not grasp, to not have ideas about things to not get caught in planning mind. One of my personal favorites is not trying to fix or control something that's happening. Not trying to make it better, but just to allow it to be, to allow myself to be, to let myself alone and to let other people have the experience that they're having, just as it is. And this is a great gift that we can give ourselves and give others. So this, um, uh, this capacity was really illustrated for me. I mean, I can think of so many instances in my life that now kind of stand out as these moments. Um, and I think maybe one of the earliest ones was that in our church when I was growing up, the pastor gave almost the identical Christmas Eve sermon every year. <laughs> and it always started the same way. And this was like 19, late 1960s, early 1970s, just to place it for you. And um, stores closed down early on Christmas Eve at that time. Uh, so he said, so here we all are. It's like 7.30 in the evening. And there's nothing we can do. Whatever has been done is done. And whatever is left undone is left undone. So here we are. We can just be together. And he said that every single year. <laughs> and I think that was probably to help people 
uh, settle after being like, oh, when I get home, I have to do this and this and this before the kids get up and all of this. But it was this deep invitation to just settle into the moment, to settle into our imperfections. And yeah. Uh, and also my teacher, Sojin Roshi, when he would be at Tassahara, there was a little pile of uh, Zabatons and these mats sitting by the door of the abbot's cabin at Yehai. And there, it was a tatami room. There was no place to sit other than on the floor. But before he was going somewhere, anywhere, the Zendo did a talk, meet with people. He would be all dressed in his robes and he would sit on top of that pile of Zabatons. <laughs> just, you know, just knees hanging down, legs hanging down. You know. <laughs> and I would knock on the door, and he'd, there he'd be sitting. He wasn't; do, he was never doing anything when I came, and he was always completely available. He was—he made himself available pretty continuously, especially at Tassahara, but also at his home temple at Berkeley Zen Center. Uh, you know, if you knock on his office door, pretty invariably answered and gave you his full attention. He was abbot and involved with many things, you know, but that was his practice, to be receptive, to be available. So that was such a powerful teaching for me, and, and that it was repeated so many times. I think if it had only been five or ten times, I might not have gotten the point. <laughs> but just to see this, you know, just, just to be able to be, not to try to fit one more thing in. So to be able to refrain from hurrying, rushing, fitting one more thing in, fixing, controlling, whatever your personal list is, um, requires some effort, actually. It doesn't tend to happen by itself because that karmic energy is very strong. So here's the effort, and here's the, the, the koan of the koan is do I seek it? What am I seeking? And do I do I try? Do I not try? And what Nansen is doing is not saying, well, it's this balance. You know, you have to try a little bit this way and then let go a little bit this way. Uh, it says, you know, turning away and touching are both wrong. You know, neither one of them is it. Ah. <laughs> the rug removed, kicked out, and our minds still are wanting to do this. Our minds still need something to do. They need something to hang on to so that they can let go. And I think that was part of why I really appreciated the Naomi Shihab piece. Because she's talking about, you know, these students, as, like I think high school students, maybe college, but I think high school students, uh, are familiar with this concept of utori, of spaciousness. And she asked them, like, what does it mean to you? And she got many, many different answers. And this one about, uh, because they were talking about poetry, being in the space of the poem was this very rich answer. But some of them were just very um, ordinary, very everyday, little practices that they had. Like this young woman who like to arrive early, to leave early so she could arrive early so that she could look around. I don't know about you, but when I'm arriving somewhere a little late, 
I don't tend to look around. I'm <laughs> embarrassed. I'm hyper-focused on like just getting there. Yeah. So I just look around. Oh, oh, look, there's space. We're in a room. There's people. There's things happening. What's happening? A young man said, oh, Utori is like when you have enough uh, cord between your device and the charger. <laughs> Very concrete. Very concrete. <laughs> but to start um, paying attention to, without trying to get something, paying attention to where do you find Utori? Where do you find spaciousness in your life currently? What do you gravitate toward? What settles you? What opens you? What would you like to cultivate in that realm? And I think it's really different things to different people. Some people are very nourished and find spaciousness in conversation and others in solitude. Some find it in running and others in sitting or lying down. Some find it in listening to music. Oh, there's space there. Others in silence. But this uh, feeling toward, kind of feeling in the dark, I think helps us expand our sense of what might be possible, what we might be curious about, um, kind of creeping out there into the uh, into the unknown, into the not knowing, which we're mostly not so comfortable with. I had a friend many years ago who had, she was a single mom and she had three young children. I think they were like five, seven, and nine. And she had a relatively new boyfriend. And boyfriend was um, a body worker, very much in his body, and pretty quiet person. And uh, the kids were rather rambunctious. And at the point when I met them, they were um, in the evening when it was time for them to go to bed. He would start clamoring for a massage. And he'd like, okay, I'll do that but you have to pass the flop test first. <laughs> and the flop test was you just lay down on the carpet, face down, and after they'd been there for a couple minutes, he'd go over to them and he'd pick up a hand or a foot, got a foot <laughs> off the ground and drop it. And if they were completely relaxed, no go. He wasn't going to touch them until they were utterly relaxed and let go. I thought that's so interesting because they were really interested in getting a massage <laughs> and very focused on that and they had to focus on letting go completely which i think is probably easier when you're a kid but nonetheless i thought that was really good and they could all do it within like a minute or two that gives me um, encouragement for my own learning about presence and body and relaxation which continues it hasn't stopped at all. And this openness of being, uh, the Nenju ceremony, at, which we do at Tassajara, it's like the end of the week during the practice periods. I don't know what Nenju means. Yeah? But it was apparently Suzuki Roshi's favorite ceremony. And it was a mystery to most of the students why that would be his favorite ceremony, because the first 
I don't know, 15 or 20 minutes were spent with us standing outside Ms. Endo in a row on the walkway, uh, whether it was hot or cold or whatever it was, just standing bare feet outside interminably while virtually nothing happened, but we had to be there on time. <laughs> and at some point I realized, you know, at some point I, you know, he was going around and doing a, you know, a jindo visiting all the altars around Tassajara. And then he came in and things happened that we couldn't see in the sendo. And then we all came in and bowed to each other. And it was lovely. But it felt like half of it was something quite mysterious and boring. But one day I realized that there was absolutely nothing needed of me except to stand on the walkway at this time and to be silent and still. And I was a fully functioning part of the ceremony just for that. It was enough. That was enough and more than enough just to be there. And then I started loving Menchu as this kind of time out of time every week. And because it was, you know, a week later, you could watch the change in the seasons. The trees would you know, be blooming or turning yellow, or dropping the leaves, or hear different things. The flowers were doing different things, and just one week at a time, just just the time to be. And zazen can be just the time to be, and it can be so easy to get caught up in what zazen should be, perhaps uh, what I should, what my zazen should be. So to just relax and let it be what it is. So this, um, this practices of Yutori are both what we do and what we don't do, and how we do it. So three, what we do, what we don't do, and how we do it. Oh, that's kind of like the three pure precepts right there. What we're, what we're refraining from, what we're not doing, what we're doing that is positive, wholesome, beneficial, and how we do it, living in the world peace. So this is um, this is cultivating the empty field, which is full and rich and fertile. And this letting go and refraining from is actually the entryway to do all good, because when we can open to poem or a breath or whatever it is, then we're listening for something inside, and it's not coming from outside. It's I mean, it's always both. Um, yesterday, um, Galen Roshi invited me to go to the museum to see the Kahindi Wiley exhibit, which was amazing. It's monumental paintings and bronzes, and there's so much there. And there were beautiful words that were uh, printed on the wall, many of them words from the artist, modern, modern pieces. But, and the words were informative, definitely, and helped create the space in a way. But mostly it was just being with the pieces themselves. And being, the lighting was amazing. It was like mostly dark and then occasionally the, the statues were, they were all reclining poses. All, um, and it was, they were all based off of the, um, old masters, monumental paintings. 
in, in declining poses. And he redid them in a more modern style with modern um, black, both African-American and African models. You know, doing this about both dead and alive in repose and slain or whatever. And it was, and they're wearing very modern clothes. They're wearing jeans and tennis shoes and tank tops, hoodies. You know, hoodies so lovingly crafted in bronze. You know, woven hair that's like every braid in bronze. Perfect. And everything, I wish I could say more. I'm still very quiet inside, seeing this, being with this. But the feeling was um, empathy. This kind of uh, grief or loss in so many of the figures were, were dead. You know, I mean, that was what it was modeled on. And this came out after, um, these were all done since George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement kind of came out of that. And beauty, just so much beauty and humanity and, uh, and a feeling of love, of deep love that the artist had for, for people and for these models in particular. In, and, and these works obviously required an enormous amount of effort to do. Training, sculpting, casting bronze. I think he has a whole workshop of people. So this balance, again, between the effort, maybe not striving, but effort, wholehearted effort, and receptivity and letting go, and how they mutually nourish each other how they mutually enliven each other, how we attend wholeheartedly to whatever is there, whether we like it or not, settle with it, and move with it. So sometimes allowing doesn't feel so available maybe because there's something difficult that's arising in body, mind, circumstances. So practicing with this can be very helpful because it, it opens more space and it helps us to become more familiar with things. Some years ago, I read about a meditation, a specific meditation practice, I think not necessarily Buddhist, that wasn't the context I heard it in, that was about imagining space. Like starting maybe, imagine the space between your ears. Not to, yeah, just to imagine the space between your ears. I mean, you can't quite, which is the point. Or imagine the space around you. Or imagine the space between this and that. And it kind of lets something go a little looser. And then it becomes a practice that you can settle into. I thought, you know, practicing with space can be hard because it feels it can feel groundless to really let go in that way. But it is, but it is possible to navigate space, to navigate letting go, 
by becoming more intimate with it. This mountain knowing is most intimate. What about astronauts? They have to learn how to navigate in zero gravity. And I think you mostly get nauseous in the beginning. And then you have to learn how to how to manage this groundlessness. You know, and they do. So we continually learn to extend our practice to places we hadn't thought we could previously. Uh, and we so often don't recognize when we've done that because it's just normal and we kind of have been wanting to do that for a long time and now it's there and that's great, but you know, but other people may recognize it. So please appreciate your practice and take very good care of all of yourselves. Thank you very much. Okay.